to the GBC Sermon Podcast from Gaimia Baptist Church in Sydney, Australia. This message from our Sunday church service is part of the resources we provide as we seek to see lives changed by Jesus. You could also listen to our Big Three podcast, a conversation that unpacks three big questions raised from sermons like this one. You can find more information about Gaimia Baptist Church as well as discipleship resources and an opportunity to join us in person or online on our website, um, I must admit, I'm up on the stage a lot, but it's somewhat less... <laughs> I like having a glass box around me over here, but, you know. Um, two Bible readings today. Um, one from Revelations 21, 1 to 5, and uh, another in Psalm 45. The New Jerusalem. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And our second reading is Psalm 45. My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. You are the most excellent of men, and your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your side, O mighty one. Clothe yourself with with splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride forth victoriously. On behalf of truth, humility, and righteousness, let your right hand display awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia, from palaces adorned with ivory. The music of the strings makes you glad. Daughters of kings are among your honoured women, and your right hand is the royal bride in gold of Ophir. Listen, O daughter, consider and give ear. Forget your people and your father's house. The king is enthralled by your beauty. Honour him, for he is your lord. The daughter of Tyr will come with a gift. Men of wealth will seek your favour. All glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. In embroidered garments she is led to the king. Her virgin companions follow her and are brought to you. They are led in with joy and gladness. They enter the palace of the king. Your sons will take place of your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. Thanks, Lincoln. 
Oh, well, good, uh, good morning. It's good to have you here this morning and uh, welcome you both on site and online as we dive into yet another royal psalm. But before we do that, I uh, have a couple of announcements to make around staff. And thankfully, they're not more farewells. Um, it's the other way. It's the tides coming back in, which is good. Uh, for those who've been around, you know that uh, we farewelled a couple of staff over the last month or so. Uh, and uh, I wrote about this briefly in the E! News on Friday, but uh, Margie Robertson, who has been on staff for a couple of uh, years now, uh, serving a day a week, uh, overseeing our volunteers, has agreed to come on 30 hours a week rather than just 7.6, uh, which is delightful. She'll be overseeing a little bit more of the volunteer uh, component of our ministry, but also overseeing the administration and operational sides of ministry here, which is excellent. So I'm stoked that Margie has agreed to, to come across. She's been at uh, YouthWorks uh, for a long time, so this is a pretty big shift for her, but uh, I'm uh, wrapped. She starts on the 10th of uh, July. Uh, and um, uh, some of you are aware that Kat Lewis O'Connor, who has been overseeing our youth and Young Adults Ministry has been on maternity leave for the last year, uh, and she has informed us, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago that she would not be coming back to that specific role. Uh, Georgia Mullins, who has been overseeing our youth ministry for the last year, has done a great job, has agreed to see it out for the rest of the year as she continues to study teaching. So I was delighted to hear that she was going to do that, uh, lest I had to step into the breach, and I'm not convinced that that was going to work at all. So I was absolutely wrapped that she was willing to do that. And Kat is actually joining our staff, rejoining our staff, shifting in our staff. She's back on board uh, two days a week, one day a week overseeing and, so, and providing some support for our young adults uh, and a day a week doing some uh, content creation, social media and those sorts of things. Uh, so there's been some changes. Uh, we'll tell you, I'll tell you more about some of the staff changes and where we're up to and where we're heading and all of those sorts of things at our July meeting on the 9th. Uh, so there'll be more information about that. But those are kind of the big pieces of news. So really pleased about that. Cat starts tomorrow. Uh, her maternity leave ended on Friday. She starts tomorrow. Seamless transition, more or less. Uh, but uh, really good news on that front. Uh, and uh, kind of incidentally, not kind of as important, I suppose, in terms of letting you know who's in and out, uh, but Karen Watkins is on leave uh, starting this week. So uh, we're a little thin on the ground uh, this week. So if you have a pressing concern, please be gracious. And you might have to call around a little bit uh, as we kind of sort that out. Uh, and uh, as of uh, the end of this week, I'll be off for a week and a bit in part because it's time for a break, but also because Amelia and her fiancé Sandon get married next Saturday, uh, which is kind of exciting. We're looking forward to that. So that's where we'll, well, that'll be Saturday. Sun, Sunday we'll just be off in the week, and I'll be back for the mid-year meeting. Nothing like coming back from holidays to a mid-year meeting, but be fantastic. Um, and I have to say that having a wedding coming up is like, it's like someone planned to have Psalm 45 on that we're looking at Psalm 45, which is a wedding psalm. Uh, next week, I will not be uh, officiating. They've asked me to, to do a little, uh, little message piece. I will not be speaking on Psalm 45, so this is not a preview of what will take place. Uh, this is a standalone independent, but we want to have a look at this royal psalm. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to have a look at it. Uh, and what we're going to do, as we've done over the last uh, few weeks, is try to explore the psalm, shall we say, in its context, but also to make some application for us. And I think that there's a fairly significant and substantial one. Uh, this uh, royal psalm uh, is uh, a wedding psalm, as has been made quite clear, the context. And the psalm itself is broken into, shall we say, three main parts framed by the poet. 
Uh, so this royal poet, this court poet, perhaps a, a Levite, uh, opens and closes with kind of the first and last verse, speaking both about the noble theme that he is uh, writing and speaking about, uh, and then also about what he plans to do with this poem. But the middle part is broken into three pieces. The, there's an address made to the king or to the groom in verses 2 through 9. Uh, in verses 10 to 15, he then turns his attention to the princess or to the bride, Verse 16 is a, a reference to both of them. The pronouns shift from singular to plural. So when it speaks about your sons, it's speaking about their children. Uh, it's speaking about you are the ones who will make them princes in the land. And then he wraps the psalm up. That's the basic outline of the, the poem as it stands. Uh, and weddings, of course, are a pretty big deal, aren't they? They're very expensive, um, <clears throat> I've heard, um, right? There's, uh, there's lots of kind of, it's, a, in, interesting, it's an interesting celebration, isn't it? Uh, there's kind of an odd mix of people. Uh, there's kind of our friends as Nicole and I, and then there's Sandin's parents' friends, and then there's Sandin and Amelia's friends. And I can't imagine there'd be any other situation or circumstance where we'd gather those groups of people together. It's kind of this unique opportunity to celebrate the blending of families. It's an opportunity to celebrate the couple. It's all of those sorts of things. And that's true now, and it was certainly true in the ancient world. But when we're talking about a royal wedding, there are more things going on, Right? Uh, particularly in the ancient world, uh, a royal wedding was most often linked to some kind of political component, right? Uh, there were alliances that were sealed through marriage. So we're on friendly terms and we're going to prove how friendly we are by marrying our children together, right? Uh, I will give you my daughter and that means it's less likely that I will attack you because now my daughter lives with you and I'm hoping that the same will still hand true for her father-in-law, right? The, the, that kind of deal. Uh, Solomon famously had, well, <clears throat> a few marriages, uh, but one of the ones that gets the most airtime in the book of Kings is actually his marriage to Pharaoh's daughter. This was almost certainly a wedding of political means and importance. Uh, to ally the two greatest nations in the region, Egypt and Israel, together by marriage. Um, Omri, one of the kings of Israel to the north, uh, he famously uh, sealed a political union with this, the nation of Sidon, which was to their northwest, uh, by marrying his son Ahab to a Sidonian princess named Jezebel. Uh, there were political elements to these sorts of events, uh, not just in terms of the, um, the, the princess or the prince or the king or the queen in question in the ceremony, but also even in terms of who would be invited. This would have been a very big international deal, right? As allies were brought in, as neighboring nations were brought in, there would have been an honor to receive one of these sorts of invitations, right? But underlying all of these is actually a religious importance, not just because it might have taken place in part in the temple, not just because there may have been some uh, sacrifices or offerings or some prayers of some description, but, but religious because of who was being married. It was the king. And as we saw last week, the physical representation of the king was meant to be the person through whom we would see God himself. The plans and purposes of the king were, were meant to be in line with the plans and purposes of the Lord. So there was a real sense that the king ruled on behalf of 
the Lord. And part of what the king was there to do was to make sure that the laws and commands of the Lord, that the worship of the Lord was done properly in order that the people might be blessed. And so I'd actually like to read through this psalm and consider not so much the wonderful union of two lovely young people or to consider the politics of what might be going on, but actually to focus right away on the spiritual, the religious components of what we read here. And there's a few reasons why I think that that's valid. I think, first of all, we believe that all Scripture is God-breathed, right? It's all useful for teaching, equipping, correcting, rebuking, and training for righteousness, including a song that was sung at a wedding, which seems like a very ordinary kind of context to receive spiritual benefit and deep teaching, right? I mean, certainly that. But I think also within the context of the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms itself, as it opens, and we've talked about this each of the three or four weeks so far, Psalm 1 and 2 introduce us to the blessed life and encourage us to read all of the Psalms in that light. And I want to return to that in just a moment. But the third reason I think it's worth looking right away at the religious and spiritual implications of this psalm is actually found in the little heading. So if you have a look in your, in your Bible, it's in Psalm 45, and then there's a little piece often in italics. Uh, it's actually scripture, but it's usually just information about the psalm. So in this case, for the director of music, to the tune of lilies, which is apparently fairly popular because there's a handful of them, of the sons of Korah, people who wrote a bunch of psalms. There's a whole handful of them. A maskil and a wedding song. Now, after the word maskil, there should be a little textual note in your Bible. And that textual note in my version says this is probably a literary or musical term. In other words, what they have done is they have transliterated the Hebrew word. So that's how the Hebrew word sounds, maskil. But we don't know what it means. It's probably a musical term or a literary one. Now, the term itself actually occurs one other time in Amos chapter 5, where it's translated as prudence, the idea, kind of a wisdom term about how one ought to act and how one ought to behave. And the underlying meaning of this term masculine seems to suggest to some scholars that there is actually a sense of instruction in the psalm. And I think that that's a really important thing to note. Right? We, you know, one of the reasons why um, you know, paying attention to lyrics of the songs that we sing is fairly important is because we actually learn quite a bit about our theology and belief through what we sing, don't we? Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, right? who was and is and is to come. Like We are learning scripture. We're learning aspects of doctrine. The Psalms are no different. They teach us. And this psalm as a masculine is actually perhaps instructing us in something really quite significant. That we're meant to read this wedding song not as a, ah, moment, right? To kind of go, aren't they lovely? Wasn't that a beautiful wedding? Weren't the flowers gorgeous? But to actually go deeper right away and consider what this might be saying to us as individuals and as a community. So you with me so far? Let's dive in, all right? So the, uh, the, 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 uh, the psalmist opens talking about this is such a wonderful theme. I mean, this, this poem nearly wrote itself. My heart was stirred. Here I go. Right? And he begins by addressing the king. And you got to say, he's quite a catch, isn't he? He is, in fact, the most excellent of men. Sounds like a catch to me, right? 
Now, what's interesting about the description of this most excellent of men is that he is not the most excellent of men because he is a hunk. We don't hear anything about his physical attractiveness. It's unlike Song of Songs, right? Rox read that at the very opening. If you go into Bible, uh, the Version Bible app, you can read that reading from Song, Song of Songs. In Song of Songs, he's a catch because he's a hunk, right? He is a hunk and a half, in fact. That's not what's happening here, right? Now, the king looks fantastic, and apparently he smells great, right, in Psalm 45. But apart from that, we are not told much about his personality. We're not told much about his looks. Why, in fact, is the king the most excellent of men? Well, two reasons, and they actually relate to Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And we keep coming back to these Psalms because they are the beginning of the book of Psalms. And they outline for us how we are to read the book of Psalms. Quick review for those of you who haven't kind of been following along, right? Psalm 1 and 2 are a couplet. They're a pair. Psalm 1 opens with a beatitude and Psalm 2 closes with one. A beatitude is a blessed are statement, right? It's a blessed is the one, blessed are those. It outlines at the very beginning how you are to experience the blessed life. Psalm 1 makes it pretty clear. Blessed is the one who does not walk with the wicked, stand with the sinners, sit with the mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and upon which he meditates day and night. That's the one way to be blessed, according to Psalm 1. Psalm 2 is the first of the royal psalms. And it speaks about the anointed one of God, the king. And how are you to be blessed? By submitting yourself to the Lord's anointed. Because in Psalm 2, the Lord's anointed is the earthly representation of the Lord. The plans and purposes and character of the Lord are meant to be embodied by the earthly king. And therefore, to submit to the king was not just an act of political obedience or political wisdom. It was actually to submit to the Lord. And if you submit to the king's anointed, the Lord's anointed, and you submit to his law, there you have the perfect combination of the blessed life. Well, have a look then at the king in Psalm 45. This most excellent of men, his lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. Well, that's lovely of the Lord, isn't it? But how has the book of Psalms told us that we attain the blessing of the Lord? By rejecting wickedness and loving righteousness. Verse 7, speaking of the king, and the reason why he has been anointed the king, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. The king here is a psalm one man. He does not walk with the wicked, stand with the sinners, or sit with the mockers. He delights in the law of the Lord. He dedicates himself and meditates upon it day and night. He's been blessed. The rest of the description of the king, again, doesn't focus on what he looks like, but in fact focuses on how similar what he does is to what God does. Have a listen. Gird your sword on your side, verse 3, you mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. We sang about it earlier. The splendor of the king. 
clothed in majesty. And yes, you could occasionally use this kind of language to describe a person, but it's suspiciously divine language, isn't it? What is it indicating? That the king, the earthly king, looks a lot like the divine king. That there's a similarity in their character and their purposes, right? And their plans and what they're on about. In your majesty ride forth victoriously in the cause of truth, humility, and justice. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemy. Let the nations fall beneath your feet, as Psalm 2 describes. The scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom, in verse 6. This is the ideal portrait of a king, isn't it? A Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 man. Now, I mentioned this before. Most of the kings of Israel didn't live up to this ideal, or at least not particularly well, did they? But as the king stands there, arrayed in all of his radiant glory and smelling fantastic, right? He is reminded about the kind of man that he ought to be as the Lord's anointed. Because that is the way to blessing. To continue to the best of his ability to be faithful to the law of God and to be the one who represents the Lord on earth. This is the most excellent of men. Then the poem shifts, turns to the bride, the princess, who also looks fantastic, right? And seems on the surface to be a pretty good match for the king, right? That's one of the things you look for in a young couple, isn't it? That they're a good match for each other, right? Well, on the surface, they look like a great match. He looks fantastic, she looks fantastic. But there's an invitation in verse 10, the very beginning of his words to, the, to this princess that I think really capture what's important. Listen, daughter, and pay careful attention. This is language of instruction, isn't it? And of wisdom instruction. You find this kind of phrase in Proverbs all the time. Listen, my son, pay careful attention to my words. This is a moment of teaching, the moment of insight. And what does he say? Well, there's two things. First, forget your people and your father's house. Forget your people and your father's house. And there's a couple of passages of Scripture that I think shed some light on this. The first is in Genesis 3, when we're told that a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, right? That they will become one flesh, a new family, right? Here, the active one is reversed. It's not the man leaving his father and his, and his family. It's the woman. But she is urged to leave her family, forget her father, forget her where she's from, her people, and become one with this man, a Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 man, right? The other passage that it reminds me of is uh, the, the passage in Ruth chapter 1. Remember the story of Ruth uh, she's a Moabitess. And biblically speaking, we don't expect anything good from a Moabite, right? As soon as we read that they went to Moab and the boys married Moabite women, we ought to go, ugh, this is going to be a tragedy. We don't expect anything good from a Moabite. So when Ruth accompanies her mother-in-law back to Israel, 
And Naomi urges her to remain. Remember the words that Ruth speaks? Don't urge me to leave you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and I. It's this kind of story, isn't it? She has forgotten her family. She has left her people behind to embrace not just someone, but something, the entirety, right? What is the psalmist urging her to do? To embrace being a Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 woman. To be the kind of wife that is appropriate for this kind of man. You follow me so far? And then he says, secondly, in verse 11, let the king be enthralled by your beauty. Honor him for he is your Lord. And, and while there's an element that this kind of makes sense, kind of, shall we say, um, in its context, right? Uh, she's beautifully attired. She looks the part, right? Uh, and the king is probably going to be enthralled with her beauty, Right? And there was an element, because of the context and because of who he was, that she should honor him as her husband and honor him as the king. But again, I think that there is more taking place here. That there's an invitation for us to think more broadly about what that might mean. Uh, Proverbs 31, the last chapter of Proverbs, concludes with a poem to the wife of noble character. It's actually part of the teachings of King Lemuel, or actually the things that his mother taught him, as we're told at the start of chapter 31. King Lemuel was not a king of Israel, but his words were deemed so wise that they included them. And the poem, this uh, kind of ode to the wife of noble character, uh, kind of concludes the entire work. But we're told in verse 30 of, thir of Proverbs 31 that charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but the woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. What kind of a woman is she supposed to be? Just a beautiful one who always looks the part, who always looks good for her husband? Is that all that this psalm is calling her to? I don't think so. This is calling an invitation to, an encouragement to be not just the perfect match for the king because you look the part, but because you are as he is, someone who is dedicated and committed to the law of the Lord and to his plans and purposes on the earth. Psalm 30, uh, Proverbs 31, rather, uh, kind of has a couple of lessons to it, right? Uh, young men, find yourself a woman like that and marry her. That's the primary lesson of Proverbs 31, right? The man, it's fascinating actually, as an aside, the man, we learn nothing about apart from the fact that everyone thinks he's fantastic. And the, the suspicion that we have at the end of the psalm, sorry, the end of the proverb, is that the only reason people think he's fantastic is because he married well. There's no evidence that he was a brilliant, spectacular, wonderful person. He just married really well and everyone's like, you're really wise. He's like, I am, am I not? <laughs> young men, find a woman like this and marry her. Alternatively, young women, be like this Right? Be like this. But I think it works both ways, right? Because uh, while the, the young man in Proverbs 31 is not mentioned, it would seem 
it would seem to be contrary to the pattern of Scripture where the young man could just be whatever kind of a dropkick he wanted to be as long as he married well. There's, a, there's another element to it, isn't there? Young men, be the kind of man who this kind of woman wants to marry. Be the kind of man who finds attractive this kind of woman. Be the kind of man who looks beyond beauty, who looks beyond the surface, who actually looks for someone who does not love wickedness, but instead loves righteousness. I think this psalm kind of functions the same way for us. Because this is not a psalm just for those who are about to get married, is it? Or else we have a, there's not a lot of application in this room is what I'm saying. Nor is it even just an application for those who are married. This is the word of God. It has application and applicability and relevance to us, regardless of whether we are married or single, by choice or by circumstance. Because this ultimately is an invitation for each one of us to be Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 people. Be, Be like these people. Be this way. And of course, the metaphor of marriage was chosen and picked up by the prophets to speak of the relationship between the Lord and his people, wasn't it? Now, in the Old Testament, whenever you come across the metaphor, it's really depressing because every time the prophets bust out the metaphor of how the Lord is husband to his people, he then goes on to talk about how unfaithful his people have been. Read Hosea 1 and 2 if you don't believe me, right? Uh, Ezekiel, don't even read Ezekiel. I think it's 16 and 17. It's just way too depressing. Same kind of idea. The people are wildly unfaithful and have broken the, the relationship that should never have been broken. In the New Testament, however, that same metaphor is picked up much more positively, isn't it? Much more positively. And I think, again, there's some importance for us to kind of think about this in the context of Scripture, Psalm 45 in the context of Scripture. Uh, Shelley read for us from uh, Matthew 25, right? Uh, which uses the image, right, uses the image of, um, of marriage as an illustration of what will happen, right, when the Lord returns. And what is the urging in that? It's to live wisely and to be ready. And what does it mean to live wisely in Scripture? Well, what it means to live wisely is to be a Psalm 1 person, if I can put it that way. Wise people look to the ways of the Lord and live in His world on His terms. We are called, each one of us, to be these sorts of people. But I think on top of that, There's also an element for us communally, as a community of faith, to consider what it means for us to be the bride of Christ. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 11, a passage that we will eventually get back to in uh, in, in our morning congregation when we return to 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says to the Corinthians that he desires to present them to one husband, Christ as a pure virgin. He wants them to be presented to Jesus as a group, as a community of faith, as those who are holy and fit, as a Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 community of faith, if I can put it that way. 
And so again, it begs the question for each one of us, how are we going at being Psalm 1 and 2 people? Psalm 1 talks about our delighting in the law of the Lord, um, our willingness to focus on what he offers us rather than walking with the wicked or standing with the sinners or sitting with the mockers. Psalm 2 encourages us to look to the Lord's anointed, in our case, Jesus, and to see the perfect plans and purposes and character of the Lord and live in accordance with that. How are we going with that? Perhaps let me put it this way. If you were in Matthew 25, if you're one of the characters, right? if you're one of the virgins there waiting for the bridegroom to arrive and it's just getting super late, he's not coming, and it's uh, so late that you started to sleep, which ones are you? If I told you definitively that Jesus was coming back on Wednesday, A, don't believe me because nobody knows that. But if I were to definitively tell you, right, that Jesus was coming back Wednesday, are you ready? Or are you scrambling for oil? Are you ready? There's the application. Listen, Guy Me Baptist Church, and pay careful attention. Forget your people and your father's house. Be united to Christ. Be united to his church. Be united to his plans and purposes in the world. Commit to being like him in character and in word, and in deed. Let the King, let Christ, be enthralled by your beauty. Honor Him, for He is our Lord. I'm going to invite Shelley and the team up. I'm going to lead us in a closing song. And as they prepare, would you join me as we pray together? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our great king. We thank you that you are the one husband to whom we have been promised. And we delight in the fact that you fully and perfectly represent the plans and purposes of your father. That in your character and in your deeds, we see most clearly what the Lord is on about. And thank you that in your gracious, um, outrageous, generous salvation that we have been invited into relationship with you. And I pray that the word of encouragement, the word of invitation from this psalm, a psalm that ultimately points to you, I pray that by your spirit these words would become our invitation too. That we might be those who are ready and prepared be presented to you, and that we might do all in our power to commit ourselves to holiness, to justice, to humility, to truth, to righteousness, 
And that in so doing, in so doing, we might bring honor to you and to your name, that your kingdom may come on earth as it is in heaven. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. We hope this message has challenged and strengthened you, encouraged you to pray and rely on God and blessed you today. If you'd like to get to know some of our church community, you can listen to the We Are The Church podcast, an open conversation with real people who call GBC home as they share stories of God at work in their lives and how their lives are being changed by Jesus.